0: Howdy, everybody. This is Matt Sewell. You're listening to episode 33 of The PopeCast, the podcast about popes for people who love history and hate boring stories. Before we get into it this week, I want to be sure and mention a great new book that's out from Ave Maria Press Catholic Hipster, The Next Level, which I was fortunate to be able to contribute to alongside a bunch of other awesome people like Speaker Jackie Francois, Haley Stewart of the Carrots from Michaelmas blog, Father Damien Farence, Patrick Nevy of the illustrious Catholic podcast The Crunch and all compiled and edited by the Catholic hipster himself, Tommy Ty. The book is a collection of short essays on how to live the beautiful quirkiness of the Catholic faith, while reminding us of forgotten saints and prayers as well, including among those uh, essays, I might add, is the story of Pope St. Gregory the Seventh. That was one of the three chapters that I submitted. Uh, Gregory the 7th you'll remember from one of the earlier episodes of the Popecast, was the one who made... Emperor Henry IV kneel in the snow for three days. So we share that story in the book, uh, of course, among a lot of other great ones. So check the show notes for a link to buy your copy. It's only been out for a couple of weeks, and let me tell you, they are flying off the proverbial shelves. It's just that good. So yeah, the link will be in the show notes, but be sure to check out the book, Catholic Hipster, The Next Level. Okay, on to the show. Our Pope this week, one of the notorious so-called bad Popes, he was what the kids might call a player. A man of loose morals who only got the job because on his deathbed, dear old dad made Roman officials pinky swear to elect his kid Pope. Oh, and he was killed after being caught in bed with a married woman. At the hands of her jealous husband, no less. Coming in at number 130, it's the Pope caught in bed with another man. the powerful Tusculani family of Rome. Octavian was the son of one the II, the princely ruler of Rome at the time, who about 20 years before had overthrown his own mother in order to gain power. Born around 937 AD, Octavian was comically elevated to the rank of Cardinal Deacon at the ripe age of seven in 944, sometime in the ensuing decade and likely after he had placed Pope Agapetus II, in the chair of Peter as his patsy, Alberic demanded that the Roman clergy swear that the next vacancy would go to his baby boy. Alberic died in 954, Agapetus kicked the bucket the next year, and the degenerate Romans kept their word, elevating the 18-year-old Octavian to become the youngest vicar of Christ in history. Octavian took the regnal name of John 12th, maybe after his great-uncle, John XI, but in any case, he was just the third pope out of the first 130 to do so, following John II and John III, both of whom reigned around 400 years earlier. But he is perhaps the only pope in history to have gone by both names intentionally while pope, going by Octavian for all things secular, since he took his dad's job as the Prince of Rome before becoming pope, and then using John for all things papal. As a bit of backstory, John the Twelfth is the last pope of what's been called both the Seculum Obscurum, Latin for the Dark Age, and in more recent centuries, the Pornocracy. The Greek word porneia, of course, meaning prostitute or harlot. For a century and a half, the papacy was in mostly rough shape, but for the first six decades of the 900s, it was especially so. That was a result of the Tusculanes and a couple of other powerful Roman families seeing the papacy as kind of a key pawn in their lust for power over several centuries. And at the beginning of the 10th, it was Theophylact and his wife Theodora. John the XII's great-grandparents, who kicked the whole thing off. Now, this Roman power couple had their moments, among them placing their patsy, Pope Sergius III, in the chair of Peter, but they eventually ceded control to their daughter, Marosia, who is easily among the most notorious of medieval characters. She was a lover from a young age of Sergius III, and went on to bear their son, the future Pope John XI. She also had imprisoned her supposed former lover, Pope John X, and may have also arranged for his murder as well, though that portion of the story is unclear. Marozia's first husband was Albrecht I, the Duke of Spoleto, and to them was born the II, who we've already mentioned was the father of young Pope John the Twelfth. Marozia had a nasty habit of husbands dying on her, as it turned out, but she never waited long to marry again and leverage the union to gain greater power. Her second marriage, after Albrecht I died in battle was to a man named Guy of Tuscany, and it was during this marriage that saw John X imprisoned and saw Morosia seizing power over Rome. Guy died in 929, after which Morosia married the already-wed Hugh of Arles, the elected king of Italy. And it was then that Albrecht II, now of age, had had enough of his mother's antics and not only declared she and her newfound husband deposed at their wedding, but he threw his mother into prison to boot and kept her there until her death five years later. Ouch. The fourth commandment apparently didn't apply much to the Tusculani, right? Anyways, Albert the the second ruled Rome from 932 until his death in 954, and that was the year before the teenage John's elevation to the papacy. And this, what historian Will Durant has called the quote nadir of the papacy end quote, was the state of Rome in the time of John the twelfth. By the time he got on the throne, so we've got an 18 year old descended from a line of rich, power hungry bureaucrats, now possessing as his personal playground. Not only all of Rome, but all of the patrimonies of the church. What could possibly go wrong? The Catholic Encyclopedia describes it like this. The temporal and spiritual authority in Rome were thus again united in one person, but a coarse, immoral man whose life was such that the Lateran was spoken of as a brothel, and the moral corruption in Rome became the subject of general odium. War and the chase, that being the chase for women, of course— were more congenial to this pope than church government, end quote. General Odium sounds like an 80s metal band. Anyway, as far as the actual goings-on of John's eight-and-a-half-year papacy, history is relatively silent for the first five of those years. We read about John personally leading an attack around the year 960 on the duchies of Beneventum and Capua, a battle which he lost handily, it's worth mentioning. Around the same time, John found his own territories being attacked by Berengar the second, the king of Italy, and his son, Adalbert. For help, John enlisted Otto I, traditionally known now as Otto the Great, then the king of Germany, and John quickly discovered that he was no match for his father's skill in managing the conniving Roman nobility. I imagine he also didn't care as much, aside from making sure his own pockets stayed padded. So Otto's help, of course, would prove useful in protecting his Roman interests as well, in addition to helping him keep the papal patrimony. So Otto entered Italy in 961, Berengar retreated to his fortified castles, and Otto arrived then in Rome to greet the Pope on January 31st, 962. After the two met, Otto swore an oath that he would do all in his power to defend the Pope. And the text of that oath is actually preserved for us even today and went as follows, Quote, to thee, the Lord Pope John, I, King Otto, promise and swear by the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. By the wood of the life giving cross, and by these relics of the saints, that if by the will of God I come to Rome, I will exalt to the best of my ability the holy Roman Church and you its ruler. And never with my will or at my instigation shall you lose life or limb or the honor which you possess. And without your consent, never within the city of Rome will I hold a plea or make any regulation which affects you or the Romans whatever territory of st peter comes within my grasp i will give up to you and to whomsoever i shall entrust the kingdom of italy i will make him swear to help you as far as he can to defend the lands of st peter quote. in exchange john the 12th crowned otto holy roman emperor then the two signed a document known as the diploma autonianum which promised that the property granted to the church by Pepin and Charlemagne centuries earlier would remain theirs and assured that popes would be elected according to canonical form to boot, aka elected in the right way, and only after approval of the emperor would they be allowed to serve. All John had to do was promise that he would keep faith with Otto and wouldn't take up an alliance with Berengar or Adalbert. Literally all he had to do, just that one thing. But guess what he did? As soon as Otto left Rome to resume his fight against Baragar and Adalbert, John began secret negotiations with Adalbert and made plans via letters to Hungary and Constantinople to pick a couple more fights with Otto. It's like this kid just doesn't learn his lesson. Otto's soldiers cut Johns off at the pass, and of course the emperor learned of John's plot soon thereafter. John, of course tried to smooth it over and make excuses, as any child does when they get caught stealing cookies from the cookie jar in the middle of the night, and it really didn't work. And to make matters worse, Adalbert came to Rome himself, apparently received a king's welcome by the Pope, and this naturally didn't sit too well with the emperor's friends in the Roman nobility, so the Pope suddenly had an open, good old-fashioned Roman revolt on his hands. All of this nonsense unfolded over the course of almost two years, capped by Otto coming back to Rome in November of 963 and supervising a soap opera, I mean, a synod of 50 Italian and German bishops who together accused John of a laundry list of sins, among them sacrilege, perjury, murder, adultery, and incest, quite colorful, and in writing summoned him to defend himself. But of course, the Golden Boy, then around 25 years old, it's estimated, instead responded with a letter of his own, refusing to recognize the synod as legitimate, then pronounced anyone who participated to be excommunicated if they elected another pope in his place. Oh, and he did so while he had skipped town to go hunting in the mountains of Campania around 200 miles away. And it was then, of course, naturally, as you might expect, that Otto stepped in, pointed out that not only had the pope broken their agreement, but had betrayed his promise under oath and taken up with a Dalbert. So on December 4th, 963, it was all but checkmate for John. It was on that date that Otto declared him deposed and elevated Pope Leo the a layman as his replacement. Leo's elevation wasn't canonical though. And John and his friends didn't like being told what to do. I imagine he'd never really been told what to do. So it wasn't curtains for him just yet. John tried revolting, violently, but his first revolt against the emperor was quashed easily on January 3rd, about a month after he was initially deposed. So John bided his time and waited for Otto instead to leave Rome himself to meet Adalbert in the field to do battle, having been kicked out until then, sometime in early to mid-February, as the Catholic Encyclopedia recounts, quote, John 12th re-entered Rome and took bloody vengeance on the leaders of the opposite party, Cardinal Deacon John had his right hand struck off. Bishop Otgar of Spire was scourged, a high palatine official lost nose and ears, end quote. As what he likely thought was his masterstroke then, John held his own synod on February 26th, de- declaring Leo VIII and all his friends excommunicated, his ordination invalid, and his consecrating bishop stripped forever. Now, it's worth mentioning really briefly that Leo VIII, even though he was considered at this point an antipope, in part because of his invalid ordination, but also because John XII didn't accept the deposition, two popes later, he would actually become the legitimate pope, kind of one of the odd things of papal secession. But in any case, after John's last antics, Otto would have acted in retaliation, but it seems our Lord had other ideas, calling John home come what may, before the emperor even had a chance. Though accounts vary some, on May 14th, not three months after the synod, where John excommunicated the anti-Pope Leo VIII, Pope John Twelfth apparently died at the hands of an outraged husband after finding John in bed with his wife. Yeah. As far as John's legacy, there's no questioning he lived like the secular prince he was, even though he held the highest spiritual office in the world. But it's worth noting that much of what we know about John the Twelfth comes from Bishop Lutbrand of Cremona, a partisan of Otto the Great who traveled with the emperor and documented what he saw along the way. Now, remembering well that Otto was no fan of John in the end, we do well to be cautious to always take Lutbrand's writing at face value. Think of the way maybe conservatives wrote about President Obama when he was president, or the way liberals write about President Trump today, and you kind of get the idea. There may be truth in what's being written, but it's it's tough keeping out the bias when one writes about one's opponent, particularly when the opponent is like Pope John the Twelfth. But even that said, not even Lutbrand could exaggerate much on the habits of the Tusculani. And it's here that we'll wrap up this episode of the Popecast, where instead of a quote from the subject of our episode, since they're aren't really any of note. I'll read from two different historians brief accounts of one of the worst popes in the history of the church, John the Twelfth. First, here's the German historian of medieval Rome, Ferdinand Gregorovius, normally no fan of the papacy, but writing a somewhat balanced or sympathetic account of John XII around the 19th century. Quote, "John's princely instincts were stronger than his taste for spiritual duties, and the two natures that of Octavian and that of John the 12th stood in unequal conflict. Called as he was in the immaturity of youth to a position which gave him claims on the reverence of the world, his judgment deserted him, and he plunged into the most unbridled sensuality. The lateran palace was turned into an abode of riot and debauchery." The gilded youths of the city were his daily companions. The son of the glorious Alberic thus fell a sacrifice to his own unbridled passion and to the anomalous position which he held as prince and pope at the same time. His youth, the greatness of his father, the tragic discords of his position claim for him a lenient judgment. End quote. And then, lastly, the papal historian Horace Mann, author of the multi volume Lives of the Popes in the Early Middle Ages, conceded that, quote, there cannot be a doubt that John the Twelfth was anything but what a pope, the chief pastor of Christendom, should have been, end quote. So it's a mixed bag in the end, I guess. Consider how any 18-year-old would handle being given the reins of all of Christendom and all of Rome at the same time, let alone one born with the gilded platinum spoon in his mouth like John the Twelfth. Sounds like he would have had a rough go managing 100,000 Instagram followers, let alone the papacy itself. But whatever the case, sure makes for a great story. Well, thanks as always for listening. If you feel called to join us on Patreon to support the work of the Popecast, always want to make sure that this content is free, but it is, it is of course, not free to produce. Just go to thepopcast.fm. Obviously, you can go there for past episodes, but if you'd like to support the, the Popecast for um, two or three bucks an episode, just click the Become a Patron link at thepopecast.fm. You'll get each episode a day early, plus, we have a growing library of papal audiobooks and uh, other bonus downloads that we do uh, periodically. But otherwise, if you've been listening for a while and like what you're hearing, uh, if you'd please just take 30 seconds to a minute after this is over, leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. It really helps others listening to to similar podcasts to find the Popecast more easily. We, and we greatly appreciate all of your listener feedback. And then lastly, before we go for inspiring Pope quotes and lesser known papal photos in between new episodes, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the Popecast. Okay. That wasn't the last thing, the really last thing, just another last reminder, check the show notes for the link to the Catholic hipster, the next level, uh, the latest book out from Ave Maria press. You definitely don't want to miss it. As we close this episode, let us pray for the soul of Pope John the 12th and all of our dearly departed popes that we may one day meet them in eternity. Until next time.